Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Justin Robinson. He is an expert on Byzantine coins. So let me tell you a little bit about him. So he has an MA and a BBA in history, and he's been working uh, many years in the coin industry. He is a fellow of the Royal Numismatic Society and a member of the British Numismatic Society. He's a regular contributor to Coin News, the UK's biggest selling coin magazine. He also writes for Coins and History Foundation, which shares fascinating stories behind some of the world's most important coins and medals. And one of his sayings is, a coin without a story is just a piece of metal, but a coin with a story becomes history in your, in your, in your hands. Justin, thank you for being here. Welcome. It's very good to be here. Thank you, Guy. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us your backstory. Tell us your, how you got involved in the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, well, I mean, it happened when I was a, a small boy. Uh, I mean, my uh, I can remember probably aged about nine or ten, um, having a look one day at my mother was reading a book and I remember it had a blue cover and there was a, a photograph, a strange photograph of a bearded man on the, on the cover. The book was actually um, Ian Wilson's uh, absolutely best-selling novel uh, based on, on the Shroud of Turin. And, um, and I remember asking my mother about this image that appeared on the back of the, the book and she explained to me what it was and I was absolutely hooked and when she'd finished reading it I read it and it was the very first I think non-fiction grown-up book that I had ever read uh, and it, it probably without being saying that probably uh, sparked in me my, my love of history which has continued to this day um, and also of course my, my absolute fascination with this incredible object um, you know it, it's an image that just it simply shouldn't exist uh, I, I love to say to people that uh, within the Shroud of Turin I think it's you see the paths of history science and religion all sort of combining in one incredible unbelievable object and I think that regardless of how you approach it whether you approach it from a purely scientific point of view or from a historical point of view or from a point of view of a person of faith um, I think the shroud has some amazing things to tell us I mean it's an absolute mystery and and I love mysteries so uh, so so I was hooked from the yeah. beginning yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I also got hooked on uh, one of Ian Wilson's books as well. And and it just uh, it, it hooked me and I've been hooked for about oh, yeah. 20 years now. Yeah, I mean, it's it, and it's incredible. And I know Ian has obviously gone on. He's, he's one of the the foremost authorities on, on the Shroud. And, um, and one of the, the lovely things is in, in recent years, I've actually got to know him uh, and speak to him. And he's been enormously helpful with some of the articles that I've been putting together. Uh, and it still gives me such an incredible thrill, you know, when I get an email from him from Australia uh, to think that, uh, that this is the guy who really started me out with my love of history. And, and of course, I've got that lovely memory of my mother, who sadly is no longer with us. But uh, I, I can remember very, very well the, the long conversations we had. I had with her about the book after reading it and the discussions that we had. And also, of course, with David Rolfe as well and, and The Silent Witness and, and that incredible sort of groundbreaking documentary that uh, came out in the early 80s. I remember watching that with my mother now. And to think that uh, one of my little coins is actually now featured in his latest documentary is, uh, is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. 
Yeah, that is definitely true. And, and actually, I also interviewed David Rolfe and we spoke about The Silent Witness and the his new movie, I think, is called Who Can He Be? That's and, correct. Uh, That's and right. it's really, really good. I didn't realize that your coins were in there. So yes, tell us about. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about some of the coins. Tell us uh, about what the what and how and why that image is so important. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it's something that certainly uh, I discovered. I mean, I, I I've had a lifelong love of history, obviously. And uh, but it was it's only been in the last sort of decade that I've really had an opportunity to use my 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 history in the workplace. And uh, and I, I work for a, uh, a company um, that actually buys and sells rare coins. And uh, on one particular occasion, a few years ago, um, we, we were actually selling uh, some gold coins from the Byzantine Empire, the, the histamine nomisma, um, which was struck during the reign of the Emperor Michael IV in about 1034 to 1041. And my colleagues in the sales department wanted some interesting stories about this coin that they could share with their customers. And so obviously I told them the best story that I knew, which was of course that, uh, that within Constantinople at, the, at that time, there was this mysterious object, the, the, the cloth of Edessa or the Mandilion, and that this bore a, a mysterious imprint of Jesus that was not made by human hands. And uh, so I gave them this story and I said to them that obviously the coin engravers that were designing this, this is the, where this image that we have today, this iconic image of the bearded Christ, this is most likely where this came from. And of course, they were absolutely hooked and, and, uh, and went off and uh, were able to offer those stories to their customers. Um, and I, I realized, I think, quite quickly that, that uh, gold coins were, were a bit outside my budget. But I wanted to have a, a Byzantine coin that actually depicted the face of Christ on it. And so I began to look. And, um, and in, in 1069, sorry, 969, um, the, the emperor John I Zemiskis, um, actually began to put the face of Christ uh, on his bronze circulating coins. Now, these are obviously much cheaper than the gold coins. Uh, they were mass produced. They, were, they would have been, been used all throughout the Byzantine Empire. And, um, and so I began looking for a, a good example of one of these, um, one of these bronze coins. And, uh, and my search, basically, uh, I looked at several different examples. One of the difficulties that we have with uh, with, with certainly the bronze coins today is because they would have circulated so widely um, very often when you look when you have the coins the surviving examples today uh, obviously they're quite badly worn because they would have been in and out of people's pockets and they would have been you know, changing hands many 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 times over over many decades uh, and of course the area that is most worn is always obviously the most raised area on the coin and unfortunately for us that that would be the facial detail so very often uh, that these these anonymous follies have a completely smooth oval where, where Christ's face would have been. So that's that's no good for us in terms of uh, in terms of seeing what they struck. But I was very I stumbled across this uh, incredible little coin um, as I was as I was looking for one. And when I saw it instantly, um, I, I knew what I was looking at. I knew I was looking at uh, the, the face that appears as we know today on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, and, uh, and the implications of that uh, uh, were quite extraordinary because this was a little coin that was struck in Constantinople in 969 AD. And we know, of course, that, that some 20 years earlier, 
um, that the, the holy cloth, the Mandilian, had been bought from Edessa to Constantinople. It was their most prized historical relic. It was supposed to bear the, the mysterious face of Christ, not made by human hands. And uh, and so so suddenly I, I'm looking at at something that was struck, you know, within 20 years of, of the uh, of the image of Edessa coming to Constantinople actually struck in Constantinople itself. So I thought this was this was quite astonishing. And I think that's what led me then to uh, to, to, to write the article that I did, obviously, that which uh, and and of course, I had an opportunity then um, a year or so later to actually show it to Ian Wilson and and to David Rolfe when I met them in Bristol. And and they were very excited and they invited me then to write an article which appeared then in the, the British Shroud of Turin Society Journal. So, you know, that, that kind of sort of brought, brought the story sort of around. And then uh, I was able to find a, a, another one, which is a little bit older, uh, sorry, a little bit a little bit newer. It was about 50 years, struck about 50 years later uh, during the reign of Michael IV. Uh, and that was a slightly larger, because it, it was a slightly larger coin, a little bit more detail, again, uh, some phenomenal, um, you know, detail which uh, which I think is uh, it, it absolutely proves conclusively that the uh, that the engravers were actually looking at something physical. They were actually looking at uh, at this this image and and carefully uh, making this uh, this engraving match as closely as possible, trying to create the best possible likeness that they could. So uh, so yeah, so it's uh, it, it's a fascinating sort of investigation, I suppose, that I've been looking at. Uh, I mean, the, um, I mean, it, it's it's very interesting because we know that the cloth, when it arrived uh, from Odessa into Constantinople, it was considered to be too holy to go on public display at the time. And I'm pretty sure that the emperor would have wanted to make sure that a good likeness of the true face of Christ appeared on his coins. And so I'm pretty sure that the engravers would have been granted a special viewing of the Mandilian so that they could produce an accurate likeness of, of the holy faith. And I wonder whether the decision to depict Christ on the circulating bronze follis was intended to commemorate the fact that it was now safely in, in the ownership of the, uh, in Constantinople, that the, in the emperor's safekeeping. Uh, and I and I and I sense that there was a little bit of a celebration, perhaps, throughout the Byzantine Empire, that the Holy Mandilian was now safe in the hands of their Christian emperor. Um, it's very interesting because the words that actually surround the face uh, on the cloth are, are the words "God with us," and I think that that's definitely a, a celebratory tone. It suggests that this is that this is something that they that they take great pride in. So, so I'm sure that the instruction that our little humble coin engraver was given was to go away and actually create the best possible likeness that he could, and he did us a huge favour because what he did, uh, unlike uh, some of his contemporaries who are working with with gold coins, they would have had more time. They would have had an opportunity to have created a, a carefully crafted face. Uh, they would have been able to have obviously copied some of the details, but the, but it would they would have been looking at the intricacy of creating a, a beautifully detailed portrait of a bearded figure. Um, now our coin engraver didn't have that luxury because uh, he was having to uh, to churn out a huge number of these uh, bronze follies very very quickly, um, and so as dyes wore out, obviously they had to be quickly re re replaced. And, uh, and so they needed an image that could be very, very easily and very quickly sort of carved into the die, engraved into the die ready for striking. And so, um, and so what I think he did, which I think he took a very novel approach. And, uh, and when, you, 
when you actually have a look at the image, and, and uh, I know we can have a look at the, the 969 AD image. I know you've got one there, that's yep. right. Um, what, what we actually see here um, is, is, as I said, this, this extraordinary sort of level of, of detail that he's able to do. But what he does is he copies the lines that appeared, I believe, on the Holy Mandilion. Uh, so rather than trying to create a very detailed, intricate face, he's actually copying, simply copying the lines. And, um, and of course, for us, that's absolutely perfect, because when we hold up what he did on a little one centimetre diameter coin, and we hold that up against the face of the Shroud of Turin, we see these incredible points of, of detail, um, which, which suggests to, to me quite, quite clearly that, uh, that, that he must have seen this in order to copy it. So for example, we see, I think most distinctively of all, a very distinctive cross shape, which incorporates the eyebrows, the forehead and the nose. We see a very small square underneath the moustache. Uh, we see in evidence of injury to the cheek. Again, exactly as we would see on, on, on the actual Shroud of Turin itself. Um, we see a forked beard. And I think one of the most uh, fascinating things for me is we see two very distinct strands of hair that are running in parallel on the left-hand side. Uh, again, this is all information which is uh, which is present on, on the shroud itself. Um, one thing I would also just want to just very quickly just point out as well, which is uh, which you've got to remember, of course, is that if we want to see exactly what the designer actually engraved, we have to flip the image. Um, so the image that actually appears on, on the on the on the coin it is, of course, a mirror image of what was a, what would have actually been carved directly onto the die that was used to strike the coin. And when you when you flip the image that appears on the coin, then suddenly it, it just springs into view, and you see all of these. You can make out all of these details, and you can see exactly the same thing on on the, on the shroud itself. Hmm. So uh, so that I think is is fascinating. Uh, I think we see a huge amount of. Um, of detail there and when you think to yourself i mean this is the actual coin itself and i appreciate you're not going to see it tremendously clearly because i'm holding it up but uh, but but the actual face appears actually it's only one centimeter in diameter it's tiny absolutely tiny to get that level of detail into it i think is is quite extraordinary and did they have uh they didn't have magnifying glasses or anything like no, that no, this was no this they, was they pure didn't. straight eyes and working absolutely. Absolutely. And I think phenomenal uh, attention to detail. I mean, the actual, uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, it would have required formidable talent, I think, consummate patience and perfect vision to actually yeah. create, uh, to actually put that uh, directly onto the die without any magnification whatsoever. And, and it would have had to have been a relatively simple design, as I said, because they were striking so many of them. Uh, and I think that that is why he took the decision to simply copy the lines mm. that made up this mysterious image rather than, um, you know, ra rather than create a, a more detailed. You know, any idea, any idea on how many dies uh, the, the die maker might have made? Uh, we don't. I mean, it's, it's one of those interesting things. I mean, dies very, very hard to find. I mean, I think there is. I think there was one die which was discovered, which which uh, has sold recently from the Byzantine Empire. Dies, of course, were used until they were simply not not producing, not striking good enough coins mm. anymore, and then they were destroyed. Uh, and of course, there was a huge. I mean, dies would have been guarded uh, very carefully because if they fell into the wrong hands, obviously they could create right. good counterfeits with them. So, so as a result, we don't have many surviving, if any, surviving examples of dies other than, like, say, that one that I mentioned. 
uh, from the Byzantine Empire. We think, and we've done, they've been tested, have done, we think that one die would have probably produced about, could have produced potentially about 15,000 coins hmm. um wow. it, it's uh it, it's uh, you know it, it's it's one of those things it's a little bit it's a, it, it unfortunately it's not uh it, you know, we can't be absolutely sure um but the actual the way that the die the, the way that the coins would have been struck is that the actual the main die the main image would have been carved directly onto the the, the main sort of almost like the anvil effectively which is where the 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 the, the, the coin blank would have been placed yeah. and then there would be another die which would have the back of the image on it uh the back of the the, the reverse of the coin would have been would have been on a, on a on, on a handheld uh, piece of uh, bronze or, or uh, which would have been then put placed over the die and then struck very hard with a hammer and that's what would obviously create the image um but uh, so as i said in terms of how, how many i mean they would have been used i mean particularly with with these bronze coins obviously they would have been having to produce at a, at a, a very considerable rate because they would have literally gone out of, around the byzantine empire what what surprises me a little bit on the coins is that they're not as round as I would have thought. So did they have did they have trouble then making them round, or did that is that just a process of how how well they struck and how well they held the dies? Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of, I mean, obviously, in terms of um, the, the roundness. No, I mean, I mean, every coin strike by definition was going to be slightly different mm. because, of course, you've got that manual element of of actually hitting it with a with a hammer. Um, of course, when we, when you're looking at coins, the the actual value of the coins came not from the fact that they were coins; it came from the metal that was actually being used. So it was basically mm. just the the image was basically certifying that this was a specific weight and and, and quantity of of that particular metal. Um, now, now in terms of that, so I don't think people in those days were particularly uh they needed to be completely round or anything like that the the, the the shape of it was very much dictated by by the strike mm. um very often what they would do is they would they would take the coin blanks and they were very often quite crudely made if you like they were very often coin blanks could be made by um by taking wet sand and and basically making holes in the sand uh, and then pouring the molten mm. Uh, metal uh, uh, over it to, to form in the, in the little trough. So so you were never going to get a, a, a completely round. You know that didn't happen until much later when you had milled the invention of milling and machines. You know who were mm. doing that, and they would be putting a collar around the metal to hold the metal in place and to give it a rim, which is what we would know today with the coins that we would have in our pockets. But obviously, um, at, at this time, no. I mean they, the coins were not being produced by that. Yeah. Uh, you know they were they were literally being made quite quite roughly, quite crudely. That the important thing was the actual metal content rather than you know the 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 finesse and how how round particularly the coins were yeah, um, yeah. but i mean you know i mean it, it, from that point of view as i said no two coins no two ancient coins are ever going to be exactly alike um you know even if they were struck with the same die they would still have differences in them by nature mm. of the fact that uh, that there was not a standardized process for creating the coins yeah, I didn't realize that uh, that the coin would be then, uh, I guess, molten to start with and poured into a like a trough, like you said, in sand. And then that would be the blank that then is 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 dyed uh, to uh, uh, to make then the coin. That's uh, fascinating. Yeah, so, 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 the, so the blank, the blank would be made. Obviously, then it would be cooled down. It would be then taken out of the uh, of, of the mold that it had been made in. 
that coin was very often heated up a little bit just to make it a little bit sort of pliant mm. uh, would then and then would be placed then obviously between the two dies and hit very hard with a hammer and, and it was that then that obviously transferred the image onto it and, and turned it into a coin so you know so coins generally were, were much flatter obviously because of, of the way that they were being produced and because obviously with the, the, the striking um so the image so, so the actual roundness of the coin would very much depend yeah. on how it was struck yeah. so so you're always going to get a uh, you know you're always going to get big differences there the other thing of course as well is that uh, another very very popular unfortunately thing for us of course is that coins were very often clipped uh so people would actually uh, shave bits off them um, for their own nefarious purposes um, because obviously because the, the coins value lay in its in its size um, you, you know if you could if you could shave a little bit off here a little bit off there and nobody noticed you could slowly start building up enough material of your own to perhaps create your own coin or, or make your own coin <laughs> and and that happened a lot so I mean uh, certainly you know you you have to be aware of the fact that there are going to be uh, you know imperfections shall we say with, with coins that have survived to the present day so there'd be a little bit of inflation as I, as I had some coins and took some pieces off, and then all of a sudden I've got another oh, yes. coin. That's well, you know, idea. it's funny too because I was reading uh, an article on on coins, and one of the things that the emperors did was as well, instead of being, let's say, for the gold coins, they would be solid gold, and then they would start to add in different metals because they just didn't have the money. And yet they were using them to basically print more gold coins. And and I hate to say it, that's what we do today. Is we just yeah, print more well, coins or print more dollars. So I, I mean, certainly, yes, I mean, and various different. I mean, I know within Britain, of course, the, the Tudor monarchs were, were notorious for uh, for debasing coins. And King Henry VIII uh, debased his gold coinage quite considerably. And uh, by by simply, as you say, adding other inferior metals to it in order to to, to, to make the gold last longer and make more coins from it. I mean, it's it is something that we don't do today, thankfully, because nowadays all of our coins are token coinage. So now, of course, the actual materials that are actually made to make our coins, they're not made in silver or gold or bronze. Uh, they're, they're usually made in much cheaper alloys now, mm. like nickel and things like that. Um, and as a result, um, you know, what we have now, you know, the coins that we have in our pocket are not actually worth the metal that the coin is actually struck on as they were in in in, in previous years in previous centuries um so we all we all have what we call now a token coinage um so we we know the value of the coin because it has the value of the coin stamped on it uh, it has nothing to do with the actual metal that's used to make it well and plus uh, as soon as you get into paper money then the paper is just a representative of what you have right. and uh, yeah. and then technically i mean i used to have and i think i still have one a uh, I think it was a silver certificate. I don't think I have a gold certificate, but that was also supposed to be able to be traded in for a certain amount of silver. And then once yeah. we went off the gold or the silver standard, then that was no longer the case either for the for the for the paper money. No, that's right. I mean, Britain had had a gold uh, stand, a gold gold standard um, up until uh, the, the First World War, and um, and our gold sovereigns. Were, were recalled. Um, we, we're making gold sovereigns and, and gold silver sovereigns. Sorry, gold uh, half sovereigns. They they would they were being circulated, um, and then when when war broke out, uh, they were recalled, and people were invited to take their gold sovereigns into the bank and exchange them for paper money to the same value. 
Um, and of course, it didn't catch on. A lot of people were very reluctant to part with their gold coins and, and receive what looked like sort of worthless pieces of paper <laughs> in return. Um, and so you have these, these sort of stories. I mean, we discovered in Britain uh, a few years ago, there was an incredible hoard of gold coins that was actually found in, in a piano. And somebody obviously had, had, had not heeded the government's request to take them into the bank and exchange them, but had simply buried them under the keys of their piano. And uh, so there was a formidable hoard of these gold coins, which 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 came to light uh, a few years ago. So, yes, yeah, so you have these. Uh, that's right. I think uh, the move over from from gold coins, particularly to sort of paper money, gold and silver to paper, so certainly took a bit of uh, getting used to, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So. Uh... The potentially the original coin, uh, coin from the Shroud of Turin was in the 640s uh, or so, which is a, a gold uh, coin under Justinian. And then there was a period afterward where the, uh, the, the image of Christ was removed. And then it was in the 940s or so that we got back into the bronze and the gold coins. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, well, Justinian the second was the very first um, Byzantine emperor to want to put Jesus onto a coin, uh, and it was a gold coin that that he used. Uh, now, his his reign, uh, as I said, he reigned sort of at, it began in six hundred and ninety two A.D. Um, and it would seem uh, that that from from the image that he created uh, of of this very iconic bearded image that we know that uh, that perhaps coin artists would have journeyed to Edessa to actually see the Mandelian, uh, the gold solidus and the smaller gold uh, coin, which is worth, I think, a third of the weight of the solidus, the Tresmus. They both incorporate many fine details of this distinctive long haired and bearded face that's sort of mysteriously imprinted onto the cloth. Um, now, what happened then, of course, is that uh, Justinian II was deposed. Um, basically, he uh, he ran into some difficulty. Uh, he was deposed as emperor. Uh, his nose was cut off because they believed that uh, a, a disfigured um, emperor, uh, nobody would be able to, would never be able to regain the throne. And um, and obviously his coins that he had created, these gold coins with this bearded figure on them, were, were, were simply uh, uh, melted down and, and obviously uh, reused. So some examples have obviously survived to the present day. But what, what makes Justinian quite special is that, um, is that just a few years later, uh, he was actually able to, to regain the throne. Uh, so we have this fascinating instance where he regains the throne and then he wants to then obviously put the image of Jesus back on onto his coin. But he doesn't use uh, the, the bearded image. Uh, what he does when he comes back uh, again for his second reign, um, he he uses a, a completely different image of Jesus. He, he has um, a much more youthful looking face with thick, curly, short hair and a much smaller beard. Uh, now, that image is often referred to as the Syrian image because there have been similar depictions uh, found in the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, that poses an interesting question because you think to yourself, well, what, what made him, why did he do that? Why didn't he carry on using the, the, the iconic bearded image that, uh, of Jesus that, that we know today? And, and I, I did discover, and whether this is the reason or not, I, I, I don't know, but I, I can throw it out there. That uh, that well that after Justinian was deposed, um, I, I know that the Byzantine Empire uh, went to war with 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 the Arab neighbours, um, and of course at that time we know that Edessa was in 
Muslim hands. It, it was occupied by, by, by Muslims. So whether or not that then closed the door to any further trips to Odessa mm. to actually see the Mandilion, uh, it, it is a possibility. And that's why uh, perhaps um, Justinian had to look elsewhere to find another image. Um, I mean, it's, it's only a, a hypothetical example, but that does you know, does seem to fit with what we know of what was happening around it. Um, I mean, surviving examples of the earlier coins in Constantinople would have been quite scarce following the reign of the two emperors that were, uh, had obviously deposed him. They would have been very keen to remove all traces of his mm. predecessor. And so as a result, they wouldn't have had any of the earlier coins probably to, to, to copy or anything like that. Um, it's interesting that that uh, on the new coins that Justinian had uh, had made, um, he actually depicts himself on the reverse, and he's holding up a globe inscribed with the word Pax Peace on it, uh, which I think was perhaps trying to show that uh, that he wanted to to you know build bridges mm. with his neighbours that uh, that his predecessors had gone to war with. Um, I, I mean, it was the last time that a depiction of Christ with short curly hair and a thin beard. Would ever appear on the Byzantine coins. The reign of Justinian II unfortunately ended very abruptly in 711 AD with another military coup uh, and this time they left nothing to chance. They, they actually had him killed. Justinian killed and his young son <laughs> they sort of put an end to that. So unfortunately that was the end of, of Justinian II but it's an interesting, certainly mm. an interesting thing. And then as you, as you mentioned there was then a huge debate that raged for, for over a, over a hundred years uh, as to whether or not we they should be putting the face of Jesus onto coins, um, the whether religious images or icons should be venerated mm. in the way that they had been, um, and there was a big debate. Uh, Emperor Leo III banned all images of Christ in in 726 AD. And, and ordered their destruction and persecuted and prosecuted anybody caught venerating them. Uh, and that situation wasn't res resolved until 843 AD, uh, when the Empress Theodora permitted the veneration of icons through the Byzantine Empire once again. And she restored the image of the long-haired, bearded Jesus to her coinage, which by now had become obviously the commonly accepted mm. image of Christ throughout the Christian world. So I think it's uh, yeah. So it's an interesting sort of debate, yeah. an interesting sort of uh, sort of discussion. And, well, and, um, and potentially just as an aside, yeah. in there, uh, is one of the stories that I've read is that there were a series of earthquakes in Constantinople directly yes. at the time, <laughs> and then they were ascribing them to Justinian II having the image of, of uh, Jesus on the coins. And that's when they basically became all iconoclasts and got rid of all the images right. out of the churches and, and then off the coinage and wherever else they might've been. That's absolutely right. I, I mean, it's uh, yes. I mean, there was a lot of that. And I think you were very much that that was the, the official sort of line that, uh, that they wanted to make sure that uh, that didn't happen again. And of course, yes, whenever, you know, even after the images then were restored, onto the coins, you know, every natural disaster was then blamed by, as being, oh, well, you see, we've put those images of Christ onto coins, we shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> and uh, so, so it became it, it became very difficult. But it's, uh, no, I mean, it, it is it is an interesting one. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and certainly, you know, it was, I think, very significant that uh, that the emperor uh, wanted to bring the, the Mandilion to mm. Constantinople. And I know that um, obviously it was in a Muslim occupied area in Odessa, 
Um, and I know, I think it was 944, I believe it was, right. when they actually went and collect, they actually went and, and actually brought the image back. And I believe, if, I, if my memory serves, they, they exchanged the image of Odessa for 200 Muslim prisoners of war uh, in order to, to be able to retrieve it from the city and bring it to right, Constantinople. Right. And of course, when it when it arrived, there was so much rejoicing. I think we, we, we know that uh, in 944, when, when, when the image actually finally arrived in Constantinople, there was a huge sort of public rejoicing. Uh, it, the, the image itself was, was initially considered too holy to be put on public display. But, uh, but it's fascinating because the, the, the people who did get to see it and, and wrote about it and reported about it, what they're describing resonates so strongly with what we know is in Turin Cathedral today. Um, so one dignitary, for example, uh, was struck by, he described it as, as the image as being formed with blood and water, sweat and image. Mm. Um, and we know that in 1130, there was a monk who, uh, who wrote that the mysterious cloth of Jesus bore the majestic form of his whole body, supernaturally transferred. You know, so this is this is all very, very sort of uh, significant mm. I think, for us. Uh, and I think what what my little coin does and certainly, well, certainly the, the two of them do is to show that this 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 Mandilian, this this image of Odessa that was being venerated in, in the cathedral um, seems to seems to have had an image on it, which was identical to the image that we have yeah. on the Shroud of Turin today. So one thing, too, is uh, if you were a uh, an anti-Shroudist, you might say mm. those coins are the coins themselves are fake. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, certainly, uh, fake coins are are very uh, unfortunately common. Um, so as a result, people who work in the coin industry have to be enormously careful to make sure that they're authenticated. Um, you know, my these two coins have been have been sourced and obviously through legitimate means. They they've come from uh, respected coin dealers uh, and supplied with with a certificate of authenticity uh, to ensure that they are exactly who they say they are. I mean, there are lots of telltale signs that we we can we can have to to identify uh, if a coin is is a fake. Um, very often, of course, when you're talking about ancient coins, uh, the coins that are faked are usually the gold and silver. Uh, these the coins that I have, the coins that actually uh, have this incredible image of Christ on them, uh, are, are bronze coins. They're circulating coins. They don't have a huge value, uh, which also obviously means that they're less likely to be to be faked by uh, by because simply the, the the money isn't there for them. I mean, they can be bought relatively cheaply. Um, even today, um, and so from that point of view, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, it's uh, it's very important. I mean, and and any reputable supplier within the coin industry has to take it very very seriously, and and, and therefore provenance is very important. Where has this coin come from? Where has it been? Um, you know, authentic. There are companies, obviously, then that exist to actually uh, authenticate it and to make sure that it's absolutely genuine. There are lots of ways that they can do that. Um, you know, metals react in different ways. So if if something is is, is purported to be gold. There are very simple tests that yeah. you can do to make yeah. sure that it is gold. Uh, you know, likewise, you, you can look at the actual coin itself, look at the edges of the coin itself, and see if there's anything that that, that shouldn't be there. You know, as part of that metal. So, lo lots of ways to authenticate it. I absolutely, as I said, the two coins that I've got here that I'm, I've been talking about are absolutely legitimate. I mean, mm. that we, we know when they were struck, we know who struck them, we know where they were struck, uh, and as a result, I think they can provide 
I think, a very compelling testimony uh, for, the, for the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, I mean, certainly what it does, what the, what the coins do is show that, uh, that the, 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 the image that was, was called the Mandilian, um, this supernatural image of Christ, is what we would today call the Shroud of Turin. Mm. Um, you know, and of course, other people have done a huge amount of work um, to, to prove that connection and to demonstrate that connection. I mean, we know that, uh, that the Mandilian was in Edessa right up until 1204 AD, when it was attacked and plundered by the, the French-led Fourth Crusade. We know that many priceless treasures from antiquity were then destroyed as the Crusaders rampaged through the city, seizing anything that they could find of value. Uh, and it was reported afterwards that they've taken many relics, including the linen in which our Lord Jesus was wrapped. You know, this is when the cloth of Edessa mm. effectively disappears. This, this ghost-like image uh, slips quietly into legend. But we know then that, uh, that, that there was a period then of, of over a century where, where, you know, the location of this, uh, of this mysterious cloth is being sort of secretly yeah. moved around. And, and, and I know so then... that it, it's been proposed, of course, that it's the, the warrior monks known as the Knights Templar who had it in their possession and it was entrusted to their safekeeping. And, uh, and what's, what's fascinating, and I'm sure you know this, I'm, I, I must have, but uh, what is absolutely fascinating to me is that when the Knights Templar fell out of favour with the Pope, the Grand Master of the Knights Templar, Jacques de Molay, was arrested with 60 of his knights in a dawn raid on Friday the 13th, uh, October 1307, that's where the Friday the 13th being an unlucky day comes from, uh, and charged with heresy, which included worshipping the image of a bearded man. There were many years of torture and imprisonment followed, but they refused to divulge the whereabouts of their treasure. And eventually the King of France lost patience, and Malloy, together with his deputy, the Templar Draper, a man called Geoffrey de Charnay, were both burned at the stake in Paris on the 18th of March, 1314. And what, of course, is so significant is that in 1349, it's another Geoffrey de Charnay, most likely a descendant of the yeah. man who had died alongside Malloy in, in, in Paris, who is also Geoffrey de Charnay. And he's, he requests the permission from Pope Clement VI to display the burial shroud of Christ in his hometown in Leary. He doesn't like, he doesn't divulge how the family came to have the cloth in their possession, but we can see a very, very clear connection mm. between, between the, the, the Geoffrey de Charnay that was burned at the stake alongside the Grand Master of the Knights Templar in 1314 and yep. this Geoffrey de Charnay in 1349, uh, revealing that his family have it in their possession. And of course, that's the cloth that is today in, in Turin yeah. Cathedral. Well, one thing I like about, uh, you know, we unfortunately have the carbon 14 date dating, which said the shroud was 1260 to 1390. And here we have uh, what is probably unequivocal proof that the coin was in either in or that the shroud was either in Constantinople or in Edessa in the 940s uh, because of the coins. And then you also have it was uh, also known of uh, under Justinian because he also had a coin in the six, uh, 690s. So Absolutely. 600 years at least prior to the dating from the, uh, the carbon 14. So Absolutely. it really... And, and this blows the carbon 14 test, I think, completely yeah. out of the water. Uh, yeah. I mean, we know, you know and, and obviously there's been new, new information where they've now released the data that, uh, that, 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 the, that the, the people, the British Museum used 
to actually make their determination that the shroud was a medieval forgery. Yeah. Um, we know now that that was that has now been completely discredited. Um, also, uh, I mean, we also have the words of the uh, of the the, the carbon fourteen. Te- testers as well uh, and I mean uh, and I'm not going to you know name names but of course the, Sir Edward Hall who actually said that uh, when he was asked about the image actually said oh well you know, there's a big market for uh, for forgeries in those days somebody went and got a bit of linen faked it up and flogged it <laughs> and those words that he used in 1988 at the press conference to reveal that the shroud was a yep. fake absolutely stopped me in my tracks because how could anybody with an iota of scientific curiosity uh, actually refer to the shroud of Turin as being something that could be very simply faked, uh, faked yeah. up and flogged yeah. Yeah. as if it was the easiest thing in the world. Well, we know that the shroud of Turin is impossible to replicate even with modern 21st century technology. So I think that that completely blows that out of the way. I think it shows that they were there was a rush to judgment that they had an agenda. Uh, they wanted to make sure that it was it, that it was found to be faked. They had no interest whatsoever in how this image was formed, which I find absolutely amazing yeah. how, a sci- yeah. how scientists could actually not have any scientific curiosity. Uh, and I think that uh, so. So for me, I think this and and these little coins themselves, even without the weight of all of the other information around them, shows, I think, quite compellingly, that uh, that the artist must have seen the image on the yeah. shroud in order well, to make the plus... and, and the beauty of it is, you don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take anybody's word for it. You simply have to look at the coins and make your own mind yeah. up. And I think that's yeah. what's what's so fascinating. We, we know we know when these coins were struck. We know where they were struck. Uh, and and you can look at that and and make your own mind up, which I find brilliant. Yeah, and uh, uh, not to get too far into the uh, the the, uh, the carbon fourteen dating, but sure. then they kept the statistics hidden for twenty years, and it took a Freedom of Information Act uh, request to get the data, and that's then when the it was revealed really that the the statistics around uh, around yeah. the dating were wrong, but. Yeah, um, it's yeah. it's impossible. I mean, you cannot, uh, you simply cannot do that uh, in 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 scientific community. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. at the end of the yeah. day, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a great believer in in, in science and good science. Um, this was not good science. Um, you know what we know about the car, what we know about the cloth. They picked the worst possible place to actually cut the image. Yep. It was actually cut from a corner of a cloth that was being held up by people for had been held up by priests for centuries to display to the faithful, often for hours on end. In that time, it had become frayed and obviously damaged. There was a repair that was done to the cloth in that particular corner in order to strengthen it. Uh, we also know, of course, that uh, that carbon-14 tests um, can be completely skewed uh, if the sample has, has been on fire. But we know of at least two instances where the shroud was right. subjected to fire. Right. So, right. you know, it, it, however you look at it, I, I mean, the, the, these this is not a, a credible thing to, to say that uh, the Shroud of Turin is a late medieval forgery. Uh, there is simply no no mandate for that. I, I mean, we what we know about how the image was created, what we know about the image itself, 
um, you know, the investigation that has been done, for example, into the pollen on the shroud, um, yep. where we've actually been yep. able to identify plants that grow throughout the areas where we know the shroud would have needed to be. So from Jerusalem through to Odessa, through to Constantinople, through to Leary in France, and then through to, down to, to Italy and, 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 and Turin. We, we can chart the path that the shroud yep. would have taken uh, simply by looking at, at the pollen grains on it. Well, no, well I'm going to I'm going to interrupt you there. Sorry. And, uh, yeah, no, 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 absolutely. I mean, I could go on and on and I know you can. <laughs> the coin stuff, I've got like another 10 or 15 questions I'd love to go sure. through with you and maybe we'll do that at a future date. But uh, so but let's let's close it there, the interview. And uh, but is there any one last thing you'd like to talk about about the coins that uh, we might not have gotten to or? Yeah, I think I think one little thing I think that this is the, and for me, this is the most intriguing implication. Um, about the Shroud of Turin and why it's so important. Um, we know that the, the, the big legend surrounding the Knights Templar, of course, is that they protected the Holy Grail, this mysterious vessel that one of Jesus's followers, Joseph of Arimathea, used to collect Jesus's blood at the crucifixion. And, and I've always believed that, um, that, that every legend, every myth ha has a kernel of truth in it to be discovered somewhere. And, um, and of course, the, the, the legend of the Holy Grail is, is often associated with the cup that Jesus used in his last meal with his disciples before his death. But it makes no sense to me how or why a drinking cup would have been used to catch Jesus's blood during his Roman public execution. It makes no sense to me at all. So then it gets me thinking, well, could that vessel containing the blood of Jesus have been something else? And the New Testament tells us that Joseph of Arimathea requested permission from the authorities, from Pontius Pilate, to collect Jesus's remains after the crucifixion. And we're told, and all four gospel writers tell us this, that, uh, that, that he, he went and he wrapped Jesus's body in a linen cloth. Uh, Mark's gospel tells us that he went out and bought the linen um, and it was taken. And, and obviously his friend's bloody body was transported to its tomb and placed in the tomb. And it's always associated, it's always fascinated me that this could be the origin of the legend that we have. Uh, could the image of Odessa and the Shroud of Turin and the Holy Grail all be the same historical artifact? And I think that my little coins help to, to make that quite a compelling possibility, uh, that, the, that what, is, what is in Turin Cathedral is, quite, is nothing less than the Holy Grail of legend. I, I mm. find that fascinating. Yeah, I, and I do too. And I really like uh, your point about, <laughs> you know, this little coin, but it tells a story that is uh, that goes on for a thousand years or even more. Absolutely. And Absolutely. so, uh, uh, so to your uh, to your bio with uh, every coin can tell a story <laughs> is uh, is uh, really fascinating. So, Justin, thank you uh, so much. This has been fascinating. I mean, I. Uh, I could, I could, I would love to, uh, you know, continue the interview, but at some point <laughs> we've got to close it. Um, sure, sure. We will, however, uh, uh, put a, a PowerPoint uh, presentation uh, yes. on the website, so you'll be able to download that and get even more information. Because I think the coins, just as Justin has been talking about, really uh, prove that the Shroud of Turin was known of well before the 1260 to 1390 sure. uh, carbon 14 dating. So uh, where can they uh, where can they find out more? I know you've written a couple of articles. So where could they go to find out more? 
Sure. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I've, I've written an article, as I said, in, in Coin News, uh, the December 2018 issue. Um, I also write for a, uh, a blog called the Coins and History Foundation. Um, if you Google Coins and History Foundation, uh, you can find my article. If you actually, if you just have to type into Google uh, Shroud of Turin Byzantine Coins, I think you'll see that on the mm -hmm. first page. Uh, that will take you to a, a lengthy article that I've written there about, uh, about the Shroud and, and its connection particularly with the Mandilian and obviously with with the, the Holy Grail so uh, so definitely a, a few fantastic well so we will definitely put those links uh, on our website guypowell.com guypowell.com and then otherwise uh, uh, again Justin thank you so much oh, really fascinating <laughs> and uh, and uh, thank you and uh, uh, and otherwise then for the audience please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin and again, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you like this one, please rate it with five stars. Justin, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Guy. Take care.